0: Welcome to Recent Memories, where we reconsider what really mattered from 1979 to 2009, one year and one conversation at a time. For this season, we're traveling back to 2004. It's Bush vs. Kerry, Benefer, Paris Hilton, and American Idol. You've heard those stories before, so we're going to talk about the other ones. The title of this episode is Man's Scream, and here's a story we wanted to figure out for history. In January of 2004, Howard Dean gave an impassioned speech to his supporters, following a disappointing finish in the Iowa caucuses. That speech was punctuated by an unusually shrill call to arms that was quickly dubbed the Dean Scream. Within weeks, Howard Dean's once promising presidential campaign was over. Now, nearly 20 years later, it's time to ask, what was the big deal? And moreover, are we sure it was a scream? Welcome back to Recent Memories, Kevin. Hey, Maddie. how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I am excited to talk about Howard Dean, but I suspect that the real reason you wanted to do this podcast w- was so that you could talk about Senator Tom Harkin, Philip Rivers, and David Lee Roth in the same story, right? Yeah, I've been trying to work with all of them on like to do a joint cameo,
1: but um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where they can all say hi to me at once. That hasn't worked out. So I think this is the next
0: best thing. Yeah, I know you. I know you're big on the Harkin energy. There's pro- I presume that there's some like Harkin Rivers Lee Roth fan fiction somewhere in the Blake archives.
1: Yeah, it's uh, where the three of them go around in a van solving crimes. Um, right. But, yeah.
0: yeah. Right. The Harkin boys. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Of course. Um, well, before we turn our gaze to politics, I wanted to first kind of shine a light on you. You know, in our friend group you're the emotionally evolved one, you know, you're the crier. In fact, your fantasy football name is the criers. And I say this, obviously, um, admiringly, like you're the most emotionally open of our friend group. But how open are you really? I mean, specifically, do you ever scream? So so we're going to have to get
1: Maybe in the weeds about what we mean by screaming, because Mm -hmm. uh, I would say by my definition, no, Um, I've definitely yell. um, I mean, I really only yell at two human beings, my son and my daughter, Um, (laughs) uh, but I don't think I've ever screamed at them. There's once where my son, when he was maybe three, smacked me when I was trying to put him in a car seat. And I yeah. maybe screamed and he like got into a fetal position and then I cried and felt terribly <laughs> and, apo- and then apologized to him the entire <laughs> drive to his nursery school. But that's the closest, I think, to a scream that yeah. I've ever
0: had. Um, I don't know. if that, Hopefully that distinction makes sense. A, yeah, you've hollered, you've yelled, m- m- unclear if you screamed. We're going to get into kind of the... Uh- um, the anatomy of a scream shortly, but l- let's let's play this out. When I was kind of combing through my personal archives, I was brought back to, uh, coincidentally, this year, where, which, 2004, which I feel like was a big season for karaoke in our friend group.
1: Oh, yeah, big.
0: And my falsetto, I thought, was funny and powerful. I would do Gimme Shelter. I would do the background singer in Gimme Shelter. I would even do Aretha. I did a lot of David Bowie. And that was a very high pitch sound. Like, do you consider that a scream? I think in
1: Rock and Roll Suicide, David Bowie's, the, the, mm-hmm. I guess the last song on the Ziggy Stardust album, there's a yeah. part where he says, he, he, like, oh no, love, you're not alone. You're I not th- alone, yeah. I, I think that is a scream. Um, yes. Because I think what we're trying to kind of tease at is that a scream is something more primal. Um, it's something that you, it is irrepressible. You, you have mm-hmm. your faculties, a scream, something's broken, and your your inner most emotions are spewing forth in a way that's uncontrollable.
0: Yeah. So when I was trying to conjure David Bowie at the end of that song, there was like a helplessness in my falsetto. So maybe I have screamed then, um, but it, it, it's it's an approximated scream.
1: Like you're right. you're uh, screaming on cue on behalf of somebody else. It's not an authentic scream. Which what we're testing is whether
0: Howard Dean's was a authentic or fabricated scream. Right, I was. I was affecting a scream. I was kind of signifying a scream. That makes me makes me feel a little better. <laughs> Obviously, you and I like to think that we're nice Jewish boys who don't scream. The truth was Howard Dean was a good boy too, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, Howard Dean did everything that you
1: could ask. He went to uh, boarding school in New England. He went to Yale. He went to medical school. He made a a bucolic family practice in rural Vermont, uh, Mm -hmm. taking care of Vermonters before rising to at least regional prominence as a progressive reformer as governor of Vermont, and then in mm-hmm. the 2004 primaries kind of occupied the role of the champion of the left wing of the party uh, before it was dominated by Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. Obviously, it comes crashing down after he was the front runner in the 2004 primary for, I think, from the summer of o three through the rest of that calendar year. I think he was the lead. But then, obviously, things fell apart in mm-hmm. Iowa. For him,
0: Yes. Yeah. In, in late 2003, he gets the endorsement of Al Gore, the former vice president, the former uh, Democratic nominee for president. Arguable and winner in 2000. Yeah. 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 And then there's sort of like improbable um, Dean wave of momentum that, to your point, comes crashing to a halt in January of 2004 with the following sound.
2: And then we're going to Washington, DC, to take back the White House. Yeah!
0: So that that's a strange sound, Matt.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's hard. It is hard to respond to, even hearing it now <laughs> almost 20 years later. So here's let's start. Let's get into it. Yeah. Is there something about that scream in particular? Is it about men screaming in general? Is it about the context, you know, what's going on? And then what does that scream mean to you hearing it now?
1: Right. I think there's a problem in the quality of that noise that makes mm-hmm. it difficult to categorize. Um, whether it's a yell, a shriek or a scream, um, it kind of straddles a lot of different buckets of mm-hmm. noises that people could make. Um, mm-hmm. And one thing that I kind of wonder is whether the problem was not that he made a noise, but he made that noise, and that it falls in that uncanny valley where, if he were a better yeller, like if you had Robert Plant or um, David Bowie screaming, he might be president. It might just be
0: that that sound is too odd
1: for for to elect him.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of like when you see celebrities or politicians throw out the first pitch at a baseball game, and it's ungodly, awful, and pathetic. And you realize like, no, you're, you're capable of doing things with your body, but that motion in that milieu is unnerving.
1: I, I actually think so because I also think to some degree if that sound is a gateway for the audience into Dean's interior life, is what is that saying about him that he made that noise? Like, do you want someone who's the commander in chief to have that inside of him? Like if he had yelled in a pure way that like exhorted people to action, you'd say, okay, like he might be able to win the war in Iraq or he might be able to end the war. But when he makes that noise, I think people's reaction is like something's going on with Howard,
0: and uh, maybe this isn't the job for him. Right. There's something improbable and unexpected in contrast with this genteel, collegial, approachable, um, impassioned, but appropriately measured man. Like that man should not be screaming in Iowa. And he should not be, right. He should not be making that sound. Um, Right. That's not
1: what, that's not a, It's not a presidential sound. And I think, um, you know, we're going to ask why it matters, because many, 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 many people who have run for office have done things much hideously worse than that. But I don't think it's the morality of the sound. I think it's that that sound is a window to something
0: that makes people recoil. I'm going to show off a little bit of the research I did on like the biology and the psychology of screaming. So um, here's, here's kind of what I, what I learned. And I had to piece together a few medical journal articles. And by the way, surprisingly, not a lot of articles about adult screaming most of the research is <laughs> pediatric
1: that makes sense most, yes, most, of the,
0: most of the research is pediatric it's about tantrums yeah. and, and and loss of control and cries for help right um, or, or to your point something more primal and it's definitely more infantile but here's here are the dimensions of a scream based on what i can learn one one dimension is rage it's sort of the um the force of anger in a scream Another dimension is distress which is sort of the quality of fear or helplessness. Another of course is duration like how how, how long or short. Right. Yeah. Um, frequency, how high, how piercingly high yeah. or not is it? And then finally, this was kind of interesting to me and I think this is this might get be ver- this might be germane to Howard Dean. There's something about the rough the roughness or coarseness of it yeah um which i took to mean like why robert plant or brian johnson from acdc screams have some have, you know have a certain quality but when it's too smooth it takes on a shrill quality so those are those are the five rage distress duration frequency roughness um what stands out to you I like that the roughness is almost like umami right. uh, like flavor. Right. It's like,
1: it's like an indescribable yeah. um, texture to the scream. No, it's interesting. I think, you know, my four-year-old hasn't totally aged out of this, so I think I'm going to start plotting mm-hmm. her tantrums on these metrics I might, uh, just for the purpose
0: of science, and maybe we can juxtapose that against Howard Dean. I'm sure she will appreciate that when she's on the uh, therapist's couch uh, 20 years from now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kevin. I f- I don't feel like we've exhausted the dean scream or the dean shriek, <laughs> um, as perhaps we might rename it. I feel like it's our moment to try to understand how men screaming in other media or contexts functions, um, like like literally, sonically, <laughs> um, psychologically, and culturally. So the 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 first um, the first context is music. It's probably like the richest category that we can that we can visit. And there are so many famous songs that have men screaming in it. I, I put a list together of like almost 10, and I wanna talk about them in, in, the, in the context of the five dimensions I talked about rage, distress, duration, frequency, and roughness, okay? Um, yeah. Um, what? Wh- 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 where do you wanna start? I got a great list here. Where do you wanna start? Uh, so uh, the one that jumped out at me was when I was driving, when
1: we were driving to college my senior year. It was me, Judd, and my dad, mm-hmm. and Judd made my dad listen to um, their Nirvana uh, Unplugged album, mm-hmm. um, and tell, ask how passionate he thought uh, Kurt Cobain was, and where did you sleep last night? <laughs> and it was very awkward because he, he he like was like leaning in from the back seat, rewinding it to the moment while my dad was driving us to college, uh-huh. and like having him listen to certain moments. So. When I think of like rough, passionate yes. rock screams that break, like that have that like umami
0: f- uh, feature, yeah. I, I, that's the one that jumps out at me. Yeah. So that's a great vocal performance to your point, high roughness and yeah. and a combination of rage and distress, like high rage, medium distress, and by the way, is able to sustain it for a long duration. What I will say is compared to other rock screams the frequency of that scream is not as high. It's a little clammier. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like a mid scream, you know? It is. But to some
1: degree, I think the quality of that scream, the authenticity of it yes. is that it breaks and it is clammy. So if you were to compare that to like Bon Jovi's Runaway. Yes. You don't believe there's any real emotionality behind it, (laughs) like that she's running away. He doesn't care. Right. Right. Um, It's it's 1986 in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, and some girls running like that's all, you know. Right. Um, There's no pain or hurt where um, one is a scream. Right.
0: And one is almost a musical note. Right. It's just different. Right. So. I, I a little bit take issue with that, although I have to confess that the first time I heard Runaway, I assume that the sound that Bon Jovi makes that I'm calling a scream was a synthesizer. Like, it didn't seem... Yeah, well,
1: that's my point. Yeah, it
0: didn't seem... I know that I'm, I'm validating your point. It didn't <laughs> seem possible that a human... That a man could make that sound and make it last as long as it does.
1: Right. So there you're understanding about something about Bon Jovi's physicality mm-hmm. rather than his emotional point of view. He's not communicating anything to you about that, mm-hmm. really, yeah. where the whole purpose of the scream and putting it more in the Dean bucket, potentially, is with Kirk Cobain is... He said that he doesn't know where his girlfriend slept last night. Like there's like that's what he's the, the lyrics at some point. He's not even verbal. Right. He's just like making like grunts. Like, so uh,
0: there's just something different being communicated, but f- and probably mother with John Lennon similar. Yes, yes. For the for the for the benefit of science, though, I do want to plot Bon Jovi's, which I would describe as low rage, low distress, incredibly high duration and frequency, and almost no roughness. It's like a um, it's like a platonic musical shrill note. <laughs> But but also but also beautiful, also kind of beautiful. It's beautiful. It's like he swallowed a flute. (laughs) Yeah, he swallowed (laughs) a flute. Right. It's like it's like he ate Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull. That's right. Um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest one that I know is near and dear to your heart, which is David Lee Roth in Running with the Devil. Talk to us about that
1: one. So,
0: I don't know if we'll have the ability
1: to play this on the podcast, but I hope listeners find on YouTube where David Lee where they strip away all the other instruments, all the other Mm -hmm. noises and just have him screaming. Mm -hmm. It is. um, Pure gibberish, (laughs) it is pure, joyful nonsense, um, but in some ways is primal in a scream. Like if you were woken up in the deepest sleep by a robot. Yeah. Like that's the noise I think you would make. Or, you know, just like confusion. I don't know if you can plot confusion in your metric. Yeah. But David Lee Roth sounds like more confused than in distress
0: or in anguish. Yeah. So obviously um not qualified to diagnose David Lee Roth, but it to hear the the voice the voice track only version of Running with the Devil is to hear um, like a schizophrenic having very um, short bursts of distracted conversation between the personalities. Um, <laughs> yes. Culminating not in rage, uh, not, maybe not distress. And ser- these are not high duration s- screams either. I would describe these as more of a Yelp. It is a, high, yeah, no. a higher frequency Yelp is what I would call it.
1: I think you're hitting on something. I think that if you... You know, I live briefly in Portland, Oregon, where there's a big uh, kind of there's a big homeless population of people muttering to themselves. Mm-hmm. I think if you waited long enough, somebody would independently <laughs> sing Running with the Devil, yeah. having never heard it. Right. It would just be the sounds that they made spontaneously while coming off their crystal meth high or yeah. whatever. Like you would just hear Running with the Devil like like the monkeys typing Shakespeare. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This is the uh, this is the uh, infinite. Portland Lee Roth uh, theorem, like the infinite yes, monkey yes. theorem, first
1: postulated here. Yeah, yeah. yeah, if you have an infinite number of Portland Portland vagrants, one of them will eventually sing <laughs> "Running
0: with the Devil." Yes, um, we already talked about Bowie in, in "Rock and Roll Suicide." I want to get to two other iconic screams before we pivot to film. Um, one, of course, is Joe Cocker in With a Little Help from My Friends, which many people our age remember as the opening song to w- The Wonder Years. That is an iconic scream. How would you describe it? So I, it sounds like he's screaming for somebody. Like someone else wrote that song. Yes.
1: Obviously. Mm-hmm. Obviously. <laughs> I'm not giving anything away, but um, I wonder if there's like an emotional distance between Joe Cocker... Uh, and that scream because he's like mimicking someone else's words because it's
0: very pleasant sounding yeah. to me, but it doesn't convey any emotionality. Yeah, high roughness. But to your point, uh, when you were talking about Bon Jovi, Joe Cocker's voice was always kind of in and around that scream. So it's almost sounds like the it almost sounds like an instrument more than it sounds like um, more than it sounds like a spontaneous Vocal emotional response to anything. So there's not, so Correct. right, no rage, no distress, high duration and high frequency. But I, to your point, because it's a cover song and because that was just Joe Cocker's voice, um, not unnerving in any way, quite beautiful. I totally agree. The last one I think I play similarly to Bon Jovi's, but I have some thoughts on this. Uh, it might be the most impressive, which is Steven Tyler on Dream On. The quality of this scream is interesting to me because unlike on Runaway where Bon Jovi just hits a note, nails it, and keeps like his foot down on the pedal, Steven Tyler keeps going higher and higher and higher, like so that the alarm is getting sounded. Does this feel like more of a scream to you than Bon Jovi on Runaway? It seems like a more complex
1: note to me, um, but I put it in the same camp as the cocker Jovi screams (laughs) Um, like it has more variation to it. But I'd be surprised that if like I sat down or if anybody sat down with Steven Tyler and said, What's the point of view of the protagonist in the song that leads to this screaming that you'd hear anything cogent in response? Because there's not a direct, like, emotional connective tissue between. Like the thesis of the song right. and the noise
0: that's being made right you think it's like purely decorative or superfluous yeah yeah, yeah. that's perfect right. yeah purely decorative L- let me pose um, a hypothetical to you do you think that there are alternate versions of dream on where T- Steven Tyler tried the same thing but the duration of the scream was very short and by virtue of that it was so unnerving as as to like hurt people's ears like is there something <laughs> <laughs> like is there is is there something about how long he carries it on and how decorative it is that makes it work. Whereas if it was just that for like three seconds for like the Yelp that Lee Roth gives, like glass would break and people would weep.
1: It's definitely, it's definitely possible they would like interfere with like their recording equipment and they had to, they had to change the
0: duration. Yeah. yeah. So here's what's interesting to me. In roughly 10 examples of high variance males screaming All of it we find to be relatively pleasurable. Like none of these men were canceled. They all got famous on account of their screams. Um, I think there's something about screaming in the context of song that is clearly not just acceptable, but celebrated, right?
1: Yeah, you know, for sure. I mean, screams are clearly context dependent, as we've talked about in the previous segment. Um, I don't know if at the end of, you know, Kurt Cobain slobbering over himself, you'd then say, like, can you talk to us next about fiscal policy? Like, it's clearly like um, or you'd want him to like, do that in a business meeting. Yeah. It, it You
0: know, it's a question of where are we OK with that degree of emotionality or or decoration? Right. Right. OK, so let's. Let's pivot to like the sister medium of music, which I I think is film. So rather than talking about screams in horror, I wanted to talk about screams when when they're used comedically and try to understand them. I, I thought of three famous examples that I think you'll remember. The first is Jim Carrey screaming in Dumb and Dumber when Seabass barges into the to the stall <laughs> of course right. <laughs> right and
1: that for you know he's going to have a meeting with Seabass that's going to be sexual
0: Right. And that, right. yeah right there's a man love rendezvous which is i think is what's written on the wall of the stall yeah. and yeah. unwittingly uh, Lloyd Christmas <laughs> uh, is there at the exact right time now <laughs> in that moment if you'll remember um, Lloyd is able to like knock out, I think unintentionally, Seabass to save himself, but then instantly cowers in the fetal position in the corner, sucking his thumb. What, <laughs> right. what does that tell you about this that scream in film? Yeah, it tells me that Jim Carrey's a genius. Right.
1: <laughs> I mean, he, he probably thought through everything we're trying to grope at instantly when he saw that. I mean, uh, I mean, we're part obviously part of the comedic effect of Dumb and Dumber is the the Schadenfreude of like watching him in that situation. Like, what are the theoretical odds of the guy that he threw at the salt shaker on like a thousand miles back is going to catch up to him <laughs> and be in that stall? A week later, clearly there's a comedic element. The Schadenfreude is like, how could you be in the worst place at the worst time? Yes. And his scream of just total and almost like him going totally limp mm-hmm. is, I think, just like everybody's worst nightmare. Um, so uh, his ability to kind of capture that physically and sonically makes him a like, genius. Yes.
0: N- no rage in that scream. Extraordinarily high level of distress.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah, Often, it's eleven out
0: of ten yes. in distress. <laughs> yeah. um, very short duration. It is more like a yelp. Very high frequency. Not very rough. This is the scream that I think is closest to like an infantile scream, right? Oh, I think it's a scream we'd all make. Right. I actually think that part of the other
1: genius is if I think if I were in that restroom stall, if if I could get anything out, that would be the sound that I would make. Yes, yes,
0: it, 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 is, <laughs> it's, it sounds the most um, biologically unwitting. It seems like the most that like, he just couldn't control it. Yeah, 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 I totally agree. A similar scream is Occurs in Home Alone when Daniel Stern, one of uh, one of the you know one of the burglars, has a tarantula dropped on his face by Macaulay Culkin. Uh, that is almost identical, although perhaps not as funny as Lloyd Christmas's scream. The third scream that I think makes it onto the Mount Rushmore, though, is Anthony Michael Hall playing the geek screaming for help to Jake Ryan under the glass coffee table after the party. <laughs> You remember that scream of course.
1: Oh, of course. Well, the best part about that scream, which is something that's unique of all the ones you described about, is that he's also out of breath. Right. Right. So, I feel like there's that he captured some part of the, what would be the genuine physicality of screaming is that like all the air escaped his lungs. Yes. Like there's like a true panic in that because he
0: can't get it out. That is very much a teapot at boil. That is You're right. that is a little bit of rage. It is extraordinarily high distress. It's also a very high duration and frequency and roughness. It's, in my mind, there are funnier screams. That might be the greatest scream ever put on film.
1: That's interesting. So there's an argument that the Wilhelm scream
0: should be replaced by the Jake scream. By By the geek scream.
1: No, the geek yes. There you go.
0: I think what makes it so funny is that the level of distress and panic are so high. And yet it is employed for both dramatic and comedic effects at the same time. Like quite well. Yeah, I agree. I
1: mean, there's something in the Jim Carrey and Anthony Michael Hall screams that are distinct from the musical screens, is that they're relatable. Right. Yes. You can. They, they put you into their position yes. where the musical screams are trying to connect you to some external emotionality that you're observing. Mm-hmm. I think those other comedic screams are saying, imagine if you were in my spot. Yes. Right. Like what noise would you make? And this is uh,
0: their ability to approximate that is what makes them uh, enduring. Yes. So like music, in film, uh, screams of horror are both common and acceptable. Screams of comedy, when done right, are kind of revelatory. Kevin, when I think about Anthony Michael Hall as the geek screaming like a steam engine blowing up underneath that glass table, the sports corollary that most comes to mind is George Brett blowing a gasket in 1983. We never hear George Brett scream. We just see him attacking a small army of men. But there's something about his rage there. And then later, of course, uh, the image of him shitting his pants in the Bellagio, which screams,
1: scream to me. Yeah, well, it's something that's uncontrollable. There's a physiological release, whether it's Brett in the Bellagio or Hall underneath the glass table. It, it can't be held in, it has to come out.
0: Right, right. The body's not gonna hold that in. Right. And specifically like the Brett pine tar incident, it's not Bon Jovi scream and it's not Howard Dean Yelp or Shriek. It is like, it is the teapot boiling over in distress and rage. It's it's closest to the Michael Hall, it's closest to the geek scream, I think. I think that's right. The sport that I was able to find the most YouTube footage of men screaming was football. And I, I will say, the evidence is scant across all sports, but I wanted to focus on NFL quarterbacks because they're sort of like the leading men, like the political candidates in the world of sports. And I was able to find three short moments of NFL quarterback screaming and I wanted to get your take on what you think each scream means. The first one is Phil Rivers screaming. So talk to me about Phil Rivers screaming. So with Philip Rivers, I there's like an exuberance mm-hmm.
1: that might be unique to distinct between the music, the film and the sports is that it's real time. There's no time to think. Right. It is his reaction at the time, probably not remembering that he's mic'd up. But Philip Rivers is like boyish exuberance. Mm-hmm. It's so boyish that it has like a prepubescent quality to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if he could yell that way in the huddle. It's like him right. watching the play.
0: It seems almost private. Like just <laughs> his excitement about what happened. Right. That was his inner monologue coming out. Philip Rivers of all of the quarterbacks we're gonna list made the most sense to me because number one, he's a famous trash talker. Like he yeah. loves talking shit to other teams and the refs. Uh number two, he has an unconventional throwing style. So there's something you know, having unconventional physicality makes sense. Uh, and then the Rico ref- Dynamite type like, release. Right. Like <laughs> the great Rico <laughs> Dynamite. And then finally, I think Phil Rivers has like 23 children so I just right. feel I just feel like he's constantly around screaming yeah so it, yeah, ma- it made I, sense to me yeah there was a, there was an innocence to it that <laughs> uh, reflects his background <laughs> yeah so the next quarterback it made less sense to me and that's Ryan Fitzpatrick for whatever reason Ryan Fitzpatrick is burly he's got the beard so the tape we have on him throwing a touchdown and squealing was surprising and shocking to me, but not unbelievable.
1: What do you think? No. What would be interesting is, uh, you know, we all know that Fitzpatrick's a Harvard man. Maybe Harvard, with his Harvard connection, Fitzpatrick can kind of have Professor Muley critique his scream now and plot it through our five points that we described.
0: Yes, and if and perhaps it was like an intertextual reference to Howard Dean. Like maybe it means more (laughs) than we even. Yeah, yeah, Uh, it's going over our heads. Well, the quarterback scream, who is the most unnerving and so unnerving as to almost be unbelievable was the footage we found on Tom Brady. First question is like, are you, do you even believe that was real? No, it's not real. You don't Um, think
1: so? No. So you'd have to, it's hard to describe, but Tom Brady, even though he looks relatively average sized, he's a big man. Yeah, huge. Like, he, he's a huge guy. Mm-hmm. Six, four. Um, mm-hmm. The sound looks completely disembodied is the best word I can use yeah. from 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 a fully grown, highly trained athlete showing their exuberance. Right. It's not boyish in the way that Philip Rivers is. And it's not
0: schoolgirlish the way Fitzpatrick's is, it's just clearly not from his mouth. Right. So you're implying that it's either a simulation or perhaps more likely it's Belichick propaganda. It's like Belichick, post-
1: yeah, 100%. Yeah. It's all been released since he left for
0: the Bucks, and this is his way of getting back at uh, Brady after the seventh win. Right. So Philip Rivers notwithstanding, he's an exception. He's got like 11 kids. He's never made a Super Bowl. Do you think a... Star NFL quarterback can credibly scream, squeal, or shriek in the huddle or on the field and still maintain the locker room? Or is it a problem?
1: My instinct would have been decidedly no, but the fact that the only things that we can find on the internet are evidence to the contrary, give me pause to my conclusion. Yeah. And maybe there's like a subculture of shrieking within professional football that's unique because none of them were the deep, guttural, or self-contained noises you'd expect from, like, people engaging in maybe the most masculine possible pursuits?
0: All right, Kevin, we've waded as deep into like the kitty side of the pool as we can. I think the water's getting, you know, up to our eyeballs. As is now custom on recent memories, let's time to bring in the expert, Kevin, okay? Yeah. And uh, for today's pod, we're so lucky to have Nico Mealy join us. Uh, Nico is the managing director at the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation. Before that, he was a director at the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard. And Nico's founded technology companies, worked on political campaigns, and was a media executive even at the LA Times. So. We've got the right guy and he's published, you know, he's been published widely, including an international bestseller, The End of Big, How the Digital Revolution Made David the New Goliath. Nico, we cannot thank you enough for joining us on Recent Memories. Welcome.
2: Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, guys.
0: If you wouldn't mind, help us level set on the 2004 sort of political moment. What do you remember in maybe late 2003 and, you know, leading up to the Iowa caucus about the Dean campaign in the field?
2: Sure. So, you know, I was living in New York City and I had a computer job and, uh, you know, we were going to war with Iraq for so-called weapons of mass destruction. And I was draftable because I was young and I wrote code and they're coming for the coders first these days in the draft. Right. So I was (laughs) like, screw this. And, um, you know, I had lived in D.C. and kind of been at the periphery of politics and loved it. And long story, but I decided to, uh join the Dean campaign, and uh, for two reasons. One is he was the only Democratic presidential candidate out of eight who opposed the war in Iraq, and um, he was kind of a small campaign, so I thought nobody would tell me what to do. I wasn't so keen on having a boss like many 24-year-old white men. And, you know, I joined the campaign shortly after what they call the DNC winter meeting, where uh, Dean gave a speech paraphrasing uh, and repeating the late Paul Wellstone's, I want to know what happened to the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party, where he basically lambasted all of the, you might say, moderate or conservative Democrats' points of view on everything from corporations and healthcare care to uh, the war in Iraq. And one of the interesting things about this is that, you know, Dean is not particularly liberal, I would say. Uh, but uh, he just felt like the Democratic Party had drifted way too far to the right. And the war was a particular kind of insanity that he just was like, what the heck are you doing? One of the things I liked about Howard is he was uh, a medical doctor uh, in practice with his wife. He was not a career politician. He was elected the lieutenant governor of Vermont because he didn't want a strip mall built on his bike path.
1: That's a winning issue in Vermont only, maybe. Correct.
2: Maybe. Lieutenant Governor of Vermont is like a one day a year job or something. And so he's with a patient and the governor of Vermont drops dead and the state troopers show up at his doctor's office to swear him in as governor. This was not exactly his planned career trajectory. And so he kind of brought a real common sense, straightforward New England, you know, flinty view of like, why the hell would we do that? And um, the, the thing about Howard Dean is that, you know, he was totally unknown. He's the governor of Vermont. Like, who cares yeah. with all my love to the Vermonters out there? And um, he, uh, uh, I, you know, he was polling below Al Sharpton, who was also running for president. His name ID was basically inside the margin of error. And um, every single time that the New York Times or any other media outlet wrote about the race, they would say something like John Kerry, uh, Joe Lieberman, um, uh, uh, Dick Gephardt and nine other presidential candidates, <laughs> you know, like right. like, <laughs> like, like, just Howard I mean, was never on the radar. And, you know, the first quarter of 2003, Howard raised, I don't remember, a couple hundred grand. And the second quarter, he raised fifteen million, and that was shocked the establishment. Like John Kerry raised half that, and he was the front runner. And in the so-called money primary, the amount of money you raise is supposed to be how viable you are. And so, basically, the media and the established Democratic senators just completely ignored Howard Dean, and suddenly he has twice as much money as everybody else, and they're like shocked. Right. He was the only presidential campaign that year not headquartered in Washington, D.C. He was in Burlington, Vermont. And suddenly, literally overnight, he is the frontrunner for the Democratic nomination. And this was a shock to the system. So
0: why don't, why don't you then catch us up to what is happening in like the very weeks before Iowa?
2: So basically, July 1st, there's this political earthquake where a guy no one's ever heard of suddenly is the frontrunner. And what follows in the next 90 days is the cover of Time and Newsweek, which, by the way, in those days were important things. And um, and suddenly Howard Dean is everywhere on every show on every. He's like the guy. And we had something called the Sleepless Summer Tour, where we had uh, tens of thousands of people showing up for rallies with Howard Dean all over the country and um, Uh, uh, and everybody basically thinks Dean is going to win. He has so much money, so much media coverage. People seem to love him. He seems really unbeatable. And then he comes in third place in the Iowa caucus, another total shock to the system. Now, anyone who had been paying attention to both public and private polls in the last three or four weeks saw, saw that coming. He was dropping like uh dropping like a dead weight in the polls. And that's because everybody else running was running, was attacking him, right? I mean, they came after him on every single thing imaginable. Everybody did. So rather than, you know, John Edwards attacking uh uh John Kerry, both John Edwards and John Kerry attacked Howard Dean. Everybody came after Dean with the long knives. And that had its effect at the end of the cam at the end of the in at the end of the open season there right before the Iowa caucus. And so the curious thing is that going into the Iowa caucus, most Americans hadn't been paying any attention to the polling and probably thought Howard was going to blow everybody away and be the nominee. But we at the Dean campaign and many others paying close attention knew this was going to be tight and Howard probably was not going to win it. I remember a conversation about whether or not he comes in third or fourth place, which is pretty depressing, given the wild ride we'd been on.
1: Did you think it was salvageable?
2: Yeah. Like if that
1: happened, oh yeah, if that oh, yeah, happened, yeah, yeah, and you yeah, came yeah. in third. You have New Hampshire in a week or two. Did you think show was over? We had lots
2: of options. We even if we had lost Iowa, we had more money than anybody else, and uh, Iowa was never a great state for us. Howard had, while governor, he was the longest-serving governor of Vermont for twelve years, and during those twelve years, he had regularly driven up to uh, to Canada to be on a, a a public access TV show in Canada about politics, and you know I think in in Toronto I believe, and he um, so there's like twelve years of videotapes of Howard having opinions about everything under the sun, including the Iowa caucus, where he had the memorable line which may be apocryphal because who knows if i remember right or not which was uh, choosing the democratic nominee in iowa is like choosing the republican nominee in harlem and uh i remember they took out somebody took out an ad attacking us for that all over iowa <laughs> right so um yeah. so basically you could lose iowa and you weren't dead it was not like everybody who doesn't pay attention to politics thinks. It's Iowa or it's nothing, and that's just not the that's not the reality. So, so we were going into Iowa knowing we we're probably going to lose, but that we still were really well positioned going forward. New Hampshire, the next one is next door to Vermont. They love that flinty New England thing. Uh, we had a really strong operation in New Hampshire, and I think we were feeling pretty good.
0: To the extent that you can kind of project yourself into that room in Iowa the night of Dean's speech, like. What's the vibe? What's the context? Like, what's Tom Harkin whispering to him? Like, what do you know about that evening before the screen?
2: I, I don't know a ton. I was in the campaign headquarters in Burlington watching it on C SPAN. Um, and I had never seen a caucus before. And watching it live on C SPAN was frankly shocking. Like, this is how we do it? Really? Is this actually <laughs> a good idea? And, um, uh, but, you know, I knew people who were there. My my dear friend and cousin, Jesse Davidson, was working for the campaign there in Iowa, and I was texting and hearing what was going on, right? And, uh, you know, uh, I think it would be fair to say that on the one hand, there was really a crushing sense of disappointment that we didn't win, even though we knew it was going to be tough. And uh, a sense of real excitement and optimism that we were still the the badass in the race. We were still Mm -hmm. the one to beat. And so, you know, Howard walks into that room packed full of people screaming there, you know, screaming like crazy crowds do. Uh, Now, he knew, presumably, I mean, I wasn't talking to him, but presumably he knew that at most Americans hadn't paid attention uh, uh, and and so they were going to be shocked that he had lost. And that meant that his speech that night was going to be televised and like most American, you know, it's conceivable more Americans were going to watch his Iowa concession speech than his first inaugural speech. You know, like everybody's really surprised he came in third when he'd been the clear front runner for so long. And so uh I was I was pretty surprised in Burlington headquarters when I saw the scream and the, you know, the speech, but I also didn't care that much. It didn't seem that it didn't seem that out of character. It was kind of like, yeah, well, that's a that's an awesome political rally. Looks like it was fun. Wish I was there. Instead, I'm in, you know, the frozen tundra of dark Burlington, Vermont. I'll tell you this, I was like traumatized by the fallout from it. You know, I really believe the media ran that that clip again and again and again to 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 take down Howard and it played into a long-running myth in the media about Howard being angry, right? I mean, there was a Time magazine cover story was he too angry to be president, which is just crap, just total manufactured bullshit and um i also uh uh because i was like traumatized by it i didn't watch it that i didn't watch it for like a decade and then i was teaching my class at harvard and it it came up and i pulled it up on the screen on youtube and played it for everybody and i really had this like knot in my chest i it was like it really was almost like i don't wanna you know it's just traumatic for me and I watched it and I was like, that's it? <laughs> that, <Right. laughs> that's all it was? That's nothing. And really? Right. It was like, it is so spectacularly bland in retrospect that you gotta wonder what the hell is going on.
0: So you're speaking to Nico, the actual quality of the scream, Um, before you joined us, Kevin and I circled what I have loosely defined as the five dimensions of a scream, which are rage, distress, duration, frequency, and roughness. Okay. Having listened to the Dean noise, I'll, I'll, I'll hold back on defining it. Um, no, no rage. No, there's no rage in there. There's not a lot of distress. It's a very short noise. <laughs> um, it's, it's not you know it's not a super high frequency, although it's higher than normal. and it's not especially rough. So I guess my first maybe I should have started here, Nico, is do you even agree that it is a scream or is it more of like a yelp or a shriek or a hmm. holler?
2: Well, I have not done the truly impressive research and consideration and intellectual lift you have in examining the varieties <laughs> of screams and utterances in the american experience so i i don't feel particularly qualified to describe or 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 pigeonhole it specifically uh a scream does seem pretty excessive to me. I think Dean Scream rhymed, and people like that rhyme. You know, yeah. the, the the Dean horse raspy scrape doesn't quite have the same uh, pleasure for the tongue to say Dean Scream, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I, I do think it probably does not rise to the to the admittedly low bar of a scream but it is uh but it sounded better to call it the dean scream.
0: Kevin, you you had even wondered if there's an element that the scream felt um handled or prepared. Nico, is there anything in your experience that would indicate that this was sort of a like a practiced holler or or was this like the genuine emotion of an impassioned uh candidate?
2: Absolutely genuine emotion of an impassioned candidate. Howard always was real. He was like incapable of practicing. And it was totally, you, you get what you see. And that, that is certainly the scream was just Howard feeling the room.
0: Are we all reading it wrong? And should we revisit like the, the 538 mini movie, mini documentary and say, no, it was not this speech that ended the campaign?
2: The speech in and of itself did not end the campaign. There were some meta dynamics at work. One I mentioned already, which is that everybody else had the long knives, all the other Democratic presidential candidates had the long knives out for Dean. I mean, they, it was just brutal and merciless. Uh, another thing at work was I really do believe the mainstream media was also brutal and merciless and did not do its job. I think that, in my view, that was in part because they were humiliated uh, by the manipulation uh, that he that that Dean was calling out the way Bush was manipulating the media on weapons of mass destruction. And they were further humiliated that they didn't see him coming, that the Internet kind of disrupted the media's stranglehold on the process. And uh, and I think the media and I'm talking about mainstream media, major news outlets in some ways saw him as the enemy, right? That he embodied the threat of the internet, the threat of disintermediation, the threat of outsiders, not from the Acela Corridor, like Mm -hmm. he embodied that. And so the first time there was weakness, he lost, then they were going to humiliate him to no end. And, you know, America loves a winner and hates, they also love an underdog, uh, but they hate humiliation. They hate humiliation. Americans hate humiliation. Like I said earlier, Howard must have known that like more people were going to watch that speech than anything he had done thus far. And, you know, that's a moment to win. and to, to that, That's your comeback moment. That's the moment to really take it up a notch. And uh, rather than speaking to America about why he should be president of the United States, he spoke to the room. And you can see that at the way he will not, he doesn't make eye contact with the camera. And some days I wonder if that was intentional. I mean, I love Howard. I wish he was president. I think the future of the country would have been better and different. So I'm going to
1: try to bring you to our to our more eccentric thesis. Um, so let's, same context, but you somehow were able to replace that sound with pick your favorite musical singer scream. David Bowie gives that scream, Robert Plant, John Lennon, Joe Cocker gives that yelp in a way that's just sonically pleasing. Any different outcome?
2: Well, if he was like sounding more like Cat Stevens or something? Sure. Or It's
1: just like, if it wasn't <laughs> whoever you'd like, you could choose.
2: Well, there is something very strange about the noise itself. I think I think you guys I think you guys are uh, I accept. I accept your argument that it's a very strange noise that's hard to qualify or describe because it's not really a scream, but what is it exactly? It has a distinctive character to it that lodges in the brain. And uh, it would be very interesting. I mean, Robert Plant, there's a there's an image for you. you know, it would be very interesting.
0: Nico, uh, th- first of all, thank you for your time. I uh, I'm going to leave you with one last question. It's not rhetorical, but if you don't want to answer, I also respect that. Um, as a as a part time Vermonter, my family and I live in Vermont part of the year. Um, I desperately wish uh, Howard Dean had been our president. If in 2016, he ran in Hillary's place, the Dean's scream never happened, but in 2016, he gives the same speech while getting a $500 haircut on a windsurf board. <laughs> <laughs> is,
2: is, is he our president? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, bar none. Like Howard, Howard was, you know, Hillary and Trump were uniquely suited to each other that. The only the only Democrat in America that Trump could beat would have been Hillary and probably the only Republican that Hillary could lose to would have been Donald Trump. So, you know, full stop.
0: Thank you for for validating the dream. Nico Mealy, thank you for joining Recent Memories. It was a pleasure. For those of you um, listening, if, uh, if you want to read more of Nico's writings, you can probably find his books on Amazon or the bookseller of your choice.
2: Sign up for my Substack, nico.substack.com, where I rant about politics mostly.
0: There you go. Nico's got a Substack, stack. And uh, if you're extra lucky, you can um, apply to uh, Harvard Graduate School and maybe get him as your professor. <laughs> um, thank you again, Nico, for joining recent memories. Really appreciate it.
2: My pleasure, guys.
0: So, so, Kevin, uh, Nico, uh, he humored us. He took our uh, sort of asinine questions pretty seriously. It was
1: pretty generous of him because I probably had to fight his instincts on, on answering some
0: of those questions. So yeah.
1: it was very kind of him.
0: Yeah. And he was also very generous with his uh, implication that my scientific research was fairly deep if he only knew how, yeah. Yeah, how little. Yeah. So why don't we then circle back to like the dimensions of a scream again to maybe like deconstruct when and by whom and in what context it's acceptable. So. Men screaming in rage, n- never acceptable, uh, like less acceptable now than ever before, but never acceptable. Not acceptable, but psychologically consistent. Yes. Like yes. Yeah, culturally sanctioned, but psychologically understood is the way that I'd put it. Right. And yeah. men screaming with roughness, especially in song, seems to be acceptable and sometimes valuable. And it's, cathartic, yeah. And, and cathartic. Distress, not acceptable unless it's comedic, right? Correct. Um, duration doesn't seem to be a huge factor, although it seems like the shorter the duration, the worse for the man because there's, <laughs> it, it implies um, surprise uh, and it's, it, it implies a helplessness uh, and it gets closer to a squeal, to something infantile or almost pig-like. Yeah, there's a yippiness to it
1: that is okay if you're a vagrant in Portland, but not in a position of responsibility.
0: And amazingly, Kevin, the frequency of the scream doesn't seem to be a major factor either. I think also what we've learned is that in music, like all bets are off as long as it's melodic, a scream's okay. Right, because I think we accept and even appreciate seeing
1: the full range of human experience in song. So you can have the vagrant yippiness of a David Lee Roth, or the guttural despair of Kurt Cobain. It's just once you leave an area where we know that man is performing, where we start to have some dissonance.
0: So that brings us back to politics and to Howard Dean. You know, Nico was sort of implying that the scream was exploitable because at that moment, cable news in particular was looking for material that spoke to Dean's loss. You, on the other hand, are more of the mind that the scream was sort of um, betraying a deeper interiority, that it was like, it was acknowledging something that we all might fear about politicians, right?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I guess what he's saying is it it was easily grafted onto what the narrative about Howard Dean that preceded him. It does suggest something about the sound because I think that sound fit with that narrative, where other sounds might have almost invalidated that narrative. Like that sound could be used to cement Dean's reputation for being angry, but if you heard, you know, like, you know, the sound that ACDC make, makes and like for those for those about to rock mm-hmm. when they yell fire. Mm-hmm. if that's what you heard. Like if he yelled that to the crowd, like fire, like I think <laughs> there's a chance he's president. Um, <laughs> right. There's the, everyone be like, not only can Dean run Vermont. He can rock
0: like he's someone
1: <laughs> <laughs> like
0: there's a lot going on there. It, it wouldn't have validated the, the, the pre-existing thesis. OK, and then my last question, and this is really, you know, we'll end where we began. Was it even a scream, Kevin? I, I, I am of the mind that it is much more a shriek. And on behalf of Howard Dean, I might want to rebrand it as the Dean Yelp. Because I don't think that's as memeable, and I think it might be part of like a Howard Dean Reclamation project.
1: I think that it's unknowable. I think that it's a, it's an unplottable sound, yeah. and it, it, it's that feature of the noise is why we're talking about it still 17 years later. If it were a scream, if it were a yell, if it were a shriek, if it were a yelp, like if Howard Dean had been shot by an arrow, like in the Wilhelm scream and he made that noise, he probably wins New Hampshire.
0: Yeah,
1: Um, I think there's just something about that sound that. In the most animalistic parts of us, we had to recoil and you just, there, there's there's no word for that. We haven't, maybe there's a word in German or Danish, but there's
0: no word in English for what that sound is. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, thanks, Kevin, for another great episode of Recent Memories. Thanks, Matt. And thank you once again to Nick O'Meely, who provided expert insight. Thank you listeners for joining us. If you haven't already, Please subscribe to Recent Memories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast provider of your choice. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.